Well, if you believe God's good, say amen. Man, it's good to see you tonight. Turn to Genesis chapter one. Would you do that? Genesis chapter number one. That should be pretty easy to find. It's the first book of the Bible and the first chapter in the Bible. And we're going to be in the first verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter number one. We're in theology for life and we are discussing tonight the doctrine of God's omnipotence. So we're going to discuss uh, several things about about the doctrine of the person of God. Um, David gave us a great start um, last Wednesday when he talked about the Trinity. I told the pastoral staff, because not all of them get to be in here on Wednesday, I told the pastoral staff that, that it ought to be mandatory for every member to listen to that message on the Trinity. That was so insightful and so biblical and, and so practical at the end of the message. I, I, I never dreamed that the, the theology of the Trinity could affect my daily life like Pastor David taught us it could. If you weren't here, you need to go listen to that on the podcast or YouTube or whatever. And I think the same is true about God's omnipotence. It might shock you by how much this could affect your daily life. Now, by omnipotence, we simply mean this, all-powerful. So anytime the Bible uses the word almighty to describe the Lord, it's talking about his omnipotence. He's an all-powerful, almighty God. Here's a great working definition for God's omnipotence. I, I love this. God can do without effort. Whatever he wills, at any time, in any place, he chooses to exercise his power. Think about that. That is phenomenal. God can do without effort whatever he wills at any time and in any place he chooses to exercise his power. I grew up watching the world's strongest man competitions on ESPN. Anybody ever seen those? They are fascinating. I was mesmerized all the time by the raw strength of these guys um, that could seem, it just seems like they could pick up a car. It was amazing. I I read where one competitor lifted 501 kilograms. Now I looked up what that was in pounds and it equaled 1,104 pounds. And he successfully lifted it for the required amount of time. I struggle to get the 45 pound bar up. And he's, he's, he's lifting 1,104 pounds. That's crazy. But, but as impressive as it is, the world's strongest man is still limited by human weakness. Right? There's a point when something is too heavy to lift by himself. He'll never be almighty. He'll never be all power, all powerful like, like God is in the sense that That the strongest man in in the world could do whatever he wills at any time without effort. Only God is all powerful. He's uniquely powerful. There's there's no comparisons to be made. There's no categories to put him in. But I do believe there's still incredible value in doing our best to consider what his power means for our lives today. That's what we're going to do. We're going to consider two things in scripture that define and explain God's omnipotence for us. The power of creation... And the power of of resurrection. Then we'll take the last half of the message and I'll show you how that could change your life even today. All right. So let's talk about this first. God's power in creation. Now, I know that those who know the Bible, believe the Bible and live the Bible uh, can sometimes fall into the trap of not being impressed by Genesis one. Right. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Next verse, please. Like, I wasn't telling you that, Tammy, but 
that's the way we, we, that's the way we think, right? That was good though. You're on cue. You're on cue. Is Rick back there? Is this how she treats you? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Like from nothing. That should be stunning to you. That should catch you off guard every single time you read it. Then the narrator gets into detail. Verse number three. Okay, Tammy. And God said, let there be light. And guess what? There was light. This is amazing. Verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And what happened? It was so. Verse 11. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. What happened? Well, it happened. It was so. Verse 14 and 15. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in, in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And what happened? It was so. Verse 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly upon the earth in the open firmament of heaven. The rest of the verses tell us that it happened. Verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And man was created. I don't know about you, but there's nothing, in my opinion, that shows off the omnipotence of God like his creative power. Did you get that most of the verses I read began with this phrase, and God said? And they ended with this phrase, and it was so? And it, it's, it's like there was no effort in between. He literally said, let there be light and there was light. I don't think there's anything outside of creation that shows the difference between God's power and our lack of it than creation. Think with me for a moment. You have never spoken anything into existence in your entire life. And you never will. Human beings are creative. Praise the Lord. God's given us that ability. But we don't have the power to create. Everything we create begins with raw material that has already been created. Even the microbiologists, some of the smartest people in all the world, begin their process with the mixing of chemical substances. They don't actually create anything. They simply manipulate created substances to generate something new. And yet God took a handful of dust from the ground. He breathed life into that dust and created a living thinking, relating, adult human being. This is one of, of power's highest definitions. The power to breathe life into what had no life. The power to speak creation into existence, I believe, is the highest form of power. And that's my God. How great thou art, right? There's a second way the Bible describes God's omnipotence. That's through his resurrection power. His resurrection power. Now, we're all used, even from a young age, we're used to the finality 
of death. We learn that when something or someone dies, like it's the end. We learn at a funeral, there's nothing whatsoever we can do about bringing the person in the coffin back to life. We've learned, sadly, how to accept death because we have a complete lack of power over it. But, but not only can we not defeat death, we can't escape death either. Right? We, we live in a world where every living thing is in the process of dying. Isn't that encouraging? And we can't do a single thing to stop it. It's appointed unto man once to die. And that's why death makes us feel weak. That's why death makes us feel unable. Death, death confronts us right in the face with how small our power is. But listen, this isn't the case with God. He's already defeated death. I said he's already defeated death. He has resurrection power. And the Apostle Paul argues that this resurrection power, this power to cause the dead to live again, is at the heart of our Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15, look on the screen. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain? And your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. If you don't believe he has resurrection power, then you are wasting your time coming to church tonight. Paul David Tripp helps us to really consider what the resurrection power of of God looks like. Get this quote. He was in the tomb, talking about Jesus. He was in the tomb long enough to be certifiably dead. Dead. Rising again after death meant that the synapses in his brain suddenly began to fire. Electric charges fired through his nervous system. The muscles in his heart started to pump. Fresh blood coursed through his veins. His muscles suddenly became soft and flexible. His, organ, his organs turned on and functioned in symmetry with one another. His eyes became moist and able to focus. He suddenly could breathe, smell, taste, and feel. His balance and orientation returned. His ability to relate and communicate instantly turned on. Thoughts and desires, plans and purposes suddenly rushed in. This is but a limited summary of everything that had to happen all at once. For Jesus to be able to get up, fold his grave clothes, and walk out alive of the tomb. Wow. And this all happened without God breaking a sweat. Do you get this? He didn't have to muster up energy like you watch on like, uh, on, uh, Marvels, like, 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 like the superheroes that your kids love in the comics. They, they have to muscle up all this energy and then let it zap out onto their opponent. That's not God. He doesn't have to garner all this energy and then give death his best blow. No, he has resurrection power like it's in him. There was never a flash of doubt at any point in God's mind that he could raise his son from the dead. There was no consideration ever of plan B should his resurrection power not work on the third day. Are you getting this? 
He did not have to construct this master plan. He didn't have to plan for three or four or five years. How am I going to make this happen? Man, I got to figure that. It just is who he is. He's all powerful. I, I believe the closest we have to being confronted with and comforted by God's power in scripture is his ability to create and to resurrect. How does that inform our behavior? How does that change our life? Well, consider a few points of application because theology isn't just about how we think, it's about how we behave. Number one, it's vital that the power of God become a key way you interpret your world and your identity as his child. I want you to get this. You may not realize it, at least on a daily basis, but we're all under an influence that is virtually impossible to escape. Every one of us. This influence is present in everything you binge watch on your favorite streaming service. It's at your child's public school or their secular university. It's present in the back and forth on social media. It's behind the worldview of hundreds and hundreds of the politicians who make decisions that shape our lives. This influence, I believe, is the view of life held by most of the leaders of the industrial and corporate world. If you have a cell phone or if you have an iPad or you have a laptop, it's pumped at you multiple times a day. And I'm talking about this scientific naturalism. You know what that is? That's a view of life that says everything in life has a scientific or natural explanation. Listen, that runs directly against our biblical worldview, which claims that an omnipotent God is at the center of everything. And whether or not you can find a scientific theory to explain what's happening or not, we believe as Christians that God is the creator of all things and remains in control of all things. According to Psalm 14, scientific naturalism is not just an alternative belief. It's utter and complete foolishness. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Listen, church, a fool prides himself on what he understands, but he fails to recognize that he's ignored the most important thing to understand. A fool claims to be rational, but he denies reality. Foolishness, according to the psalmist, will never lead you anywhere good. It will never produce anything good in your life. As Christians, we know the Bible declares that your hope in life and in death is the power of God. He rules in power on your behalf and even greater, he gifts you with power as his child. Any other way of making sense out of your world, out of your uh, life, out of who you are is not only wrong, it is utterly foolish. All of us should be concerned about the profound influence of scientific naturalism on us and on our world. But we should particularly be concerned for our children. Wouldn't it be sad for our children to be raised in a Christian home, but to grow up to think and live as fools who deny the ultimate power and glory of the one true omnipotent God? I don't think I'm stretching it. To say this, we need to raise little theological thinkers. I'm talking about kids who learn early to interpret who they are 
and where they live from the perspective of a world ruled by an omnipotent God. That doesn't happen because you give them one lecture every so often when they get in trouble. It happens because you learn how to have Bible gospel-centered conversations with them every single day. It happens when they see mom in the Bible and dad in the Bible. It happens when before that evening meal, you pray and say thank you to the God that rules the earth. It happens when before you put them in bed, you learn a verse or, or you talk to them about what they're thankful for that day. And then you pray as a family and thank God for it. It happens not when they become a teenager and you're trying to talk them out of a worldview. That you should have talked them out of years ago. So now youth pastors have to rescue kids from unbiblical worldviews that mom and dad should have been rescuing them from from the time they could talk. The church's job is to never be miracle workers. We're to supplement what the home is already doing. And I'm not talking about teaching your kids how to be a Republican. I'm talking about how to teach your kids how to be a Christian. A Bible believer. How to center everything that's going on in their world, political and non-political. How to center it on the Lord Jesus Christ. And to constantly be inserting truth into their life. That way when the world gets them, or attempts to get them, they can't. Or it's a lot harder to. Consider a second application point. We will not always be happy with the way God exercises his power. Just because you believe that God has all power doesn't mean you'll be pleased by the way he uses it. See, there are times when God's exercise of his power for our good doesn't look good to us at all. You know what I mean? In his power, God will often lead us down hard paths, not because he's angry with us, but because he loves us. And the hard path is a tool of his redeeming grace in our lives. But as Christians, sometimes as a result of getting of life, getting hard at times, here's what happens. We begin to struggle, not because God isn't working, but rather because he isn't exerting his power toward us in our circumstance in the way we wish he would. We don't doubt that God's all powerful. We know Genesis 1, even when we're going through the valleys of life. We just don't like how his power is being demonstrated. I think about Numbers chapter 11. It gives us a pointed illustration of this. The children of Israel are on their 40 year journey from Egypt to the promised land. They were nomads. That meant they couldn't plant crops and raise cattle like they would if they stayed in one place. So God fed them. He exerted his power to feed them. He literally caused edible material to fall like dew every morning. So that his his people, the Israelites, could go out of their tents. They could collect it, bake it into cakes, and have their hunger satisfied. And he called it manna. But here's how God's children responded to this loving act of an omnipotent God. Numbers 11, verse 4. And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a-lusting. They got discontent. The children of Israel also wept again and said, who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. It sounds like my son. Is this all you got, mom? We got to have this again. This is amazing, though. Though God used his power 
to provide nutrition for his people every single day, they weren't thankful. They complained about the way God exercised his power. And worse, they started to doubt God's goodness to them altogether when they started to want what they had back in Egypt, when they were slaves. You know, that's what discontentment does, right? It distorts your vision and then it causes you to question how God has exercised his power on your behalf. And then it tempts you to crave what you shouldn't crave while rejecting what should cause you to be grateful. Listen, the tension of our lives as Christians isn't really about the power of God or his willingness to exert it for our provision and for our protection. No, the tension is usually about whether we'll respond to his power with gratitude or complaint when we experience it. He will use his power to provide for you. He promises, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He will exert his power to provide for you. He will exert his power to protect you. He is your tower. He is your shield. He is your buckler. He is everything you need in the valley, in the darkness, in the day of trouble. God will exert his power to be everything you need him to be. But it might not be in ways that feel the most comfortable to you. And it might not be the ways that you like. In those moments, your response is very important. Let me give you a third application point. In light of God's omnipotence, we all need to abandon our own delusions of autonomy. Autonomy says this, you're an independent being with the right to do with your life, whatever you want to do. That was the lie hidden behind Satan's temptation in the Garden of Eden. He seduced Eve with the delusion of autonomy when he said this, you will be like God. Eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will be all wise. You will have autonomous wisdom. You will have autonomous strength, just like God. Here's what we have to understand. Hear me. We were never created to be independent. Do you know that? We were never created to be autonomous. Even in a perfect world and in a perfect relationship with God, Adam and Eve were dependent on him. They didn't have either the power of independent wisdom or of independent strength. And that's okay because the physical and mental limits of those made in God's image were designed to drive them to a daily dependency and submission upon God. Here's the point. God is omnipotent, which makes God autonomous and we're not. So we should never live as though we are. Because Adam and Eve show us nothing good happens when we try to be independent. And us Americans, we like our independence. Right? We celebrate Independence Day. Land of the free, home of the brave. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps and live the American dream. Right? Well, as Christians, that's not how we do it. God creates us to be dependent Not independent. If he created us to be independent, then he would have created a bunch of gods. Just like him. All powerful gods. That's not how he created you. It's not how he created me. So so let's, let's abandon our own delusions of autonomy tonight. Life doesn't work well when we act that way. Brings us to the fourth application point. The last two are the most encouraging. In light of God's omnipotence, we all need to understand the power of God for our everyday lives. 
Listen closely. Powerlessness. I think it's something we all feel on a daily basis in different ways. Think about it. In your job. You've probably noticed that it's nearly impossible sometimes for you to love each and every one of your coworkers the same. Right? For some reason, someone at your job, whoever that is coming to your mind right now, irritates you. (laughs) It's my secretary grinning at me. I caught that out of my peripheral. I sensed it too. It was more the the nonverbal going on. But someone at your job irritates you and pulls out of you more disrespect than love. If you have an extended family, you know that it's hard to have long-term family peace. Sometimes holidays, sometimes reunions result in more hurt and division than, than deeper unity and love, right? If you're elderly, you know it's hard to be happy and thankful and content as you deal with the loneliness and, and physical weakness and hardships that come with aging. If you're a mom or dad, you know it's hard to be consistently patient with your kids. And kind and gentle and sympathetic and loving and gracious. She try to exercise God-given authority in their lives. It's, it's just hard. If you're married, you know there are days when it's hard to love your spouse. With self-sacrificing, forgiving and patient love. It's hard. If you're in college, it's hard and costly to stand for your faith in a place where it's not esteemed. It's hard to steward your money well in a materialistic world. It's hard to keep our hearts sexually pure in a culture that is growingly sexualized. It's hard to be faithful in personal Bible reading and prayer and worship in a society that demands we be so busy. That's why it's vital for all of us to understand the comfort that's to be found tonight when we apply the truth of God's power to every situation, every uh, relationship, and every location of our daily lives. Get this, being a child of God tonight means you're no longer left to the limited resources of your own power. No matter what you're facing, hear me, God acts in power on your behalf and he gifts you with power that is his. And he gives it to you. I'll show you, Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. This is profound. The same power by which life was breathed into Christ's dead, dead body is now yours as God's child. Is this sinking in tonight? Paul wants you to know that, that God's power is not some abstract theological thing. It's your hope right now. No matter who you are, no matter what you're facing. See, here's the truth. You don't have the power as a parent to make your children want to do what's right. But God does. You don't have the power to change your boss or your co-workers, but God does. You don't have the power to work up courage in your defeated heart tonight, but God does. You don't have the power to bring sweet peace back into your marriage, but God does. You don't have the power to reconcile that broken relationship, but God does. 
And if you believe he is with you, if you believe that he is for you, if you believe that he is in you, then you will live with hope. Then you'll act with courage in those places where you've tended to give up hope and where you've just quit trying altogether. Can I ask you tonight, where have you been tempted to give up? Where have you quit doing the good things that God calls you to do because they just don't seem to be making a difference? Where have you let your own feelings of weakness and powerlessness shape your responses to life more than the resurrection power that is yours right now as a child of God? Let me give you one more application point. Very encouraging. You need to realize that God's power is essential to his fathering care for us. I love this point. It's a fitting ending. Psalm 103, verse 13. Check this verse out. Like as a father pitieth his children. The word pitieth could also be translated has compassion on his children. So the Lord pitieth or has compassion on them that fear him. This is so interesting. If you study that word pitieth, it's the word raham. It's related to the Hebrew word for womb. It's it's the unique kind of compassion that a mother would have for a child that she's carried in her own womb. This type of pity, this type of compassion. Listen, it's why a mom or dad gets up early in the morning and stays up late at night, day after day, for the welfare of their children. It's what motivates all of a parent's care from changing diapers to having really hard and long conversations with their teenagers and all the self-sacrificing things that parents do in between. And it's this word, Raham, that the psalmist uses to say this to us. That's how your heavenly father loves you. As God's child, by his grace, Raham, deep compassion is behind God's exercise of his power Toward you and for you and within you. Tripp said it this way. The fatherhood of God is where boundless love meets unlimited power. This is profound. Boundless love meets unlimited power. Omniscience, love. All loving, all powerful. Simultaneously, perfectly at the same time. Now, there are times when I have, I feel like boundless love for my son. I really do. But I don't have the power to do for him what he needs. Right? We, I, we just took a little family getaway the last couple of days and, and made my son's dream come true. Took him to see Steph Curry, the Golden State Warriors play the Oklahoma City Thunder. We even got there at 530. Braved the cold. Got there at 530. Waited at the doors. Got there at 5.30, walked in because Steph Curry does the same 22-minute warm-up drill before every game. And my son has wanted to see that forever. He's watched it on YouTube for years. And so we get there early enough. We're like the fourth, literally the fourth person in that entrance. And we walk down courtside where the Golden State Warriors benches and we're right next to the basketball goal. As close as they'll let us get. And, and, and here comes Steph Curry. And, and I've got the whole thing on my phone. My son is just eating this up. And loving it. But when he's done, we've got to go back and get our seats for the game. And we got pretty good seats because I boundlessly love my son. So we're like 13, 14 rows up. 
But my son, you know what he was fixated on? Those floor side seats. He's like, Dad, when can we sit on like court side? I mean, I have boundless love for my son. And you got to know this. If I could make that happen, I would. And you could call it spoiling him. You call it whatever you want. I don't care. But I would do it because I love to see those looks on his face. I w- but I can't. I can't. One day I will, though. I told him that before he graduates high school, you will sit floor side at a Warriors game. I promise you that. So I'm starting to save up right now. And if you want to give to that fund, you mark it on your offering envelope tonight. <laughs> Because I got like six years to make that happen. They're very expensive. But sadly, there are other times when I've had the power to do for him what he needs. But I don't love him enough in the moment to do it. You know what I mean? I have the power to have a hard talk with him. But I don't. I don't love him enough in the moment to do it. Because I'm watching a TV show. I, I, I have the power to say no to him. But I don't love him enough to do it because of what that would result in. All I'm doing is pointing out to you that earthly fathers at their best do not compare to our heavenly father. Because while we can boundlessly love our children, we cannot be all powerful in their life. And while sometimes we have the power to do what we need or what they need for us to do, we don't love them enough to do it. Yet God has both to the greatest degree and exercises them perfectly toward us 100% of the time. Because when we think think of an omnipotent God, oftentimes we think of this gigantic deity, right? He said, let there be light and there was light. And we need to think of it in those realms sometimes. But then it makes us feel like we have this faraway, distant God. And so I wanted to close tonight's message by reminding you that though God is all powerful in your life. And he can speak life into something that was once dead without even showing any effort whatsoever. I wanted to still show you that he is as tender as a perfect, loving, heavenly father. And his power flows through and hand to hand with his love. You know what that tells me? It tells me this. I can trust my heavenly father. I can trust him. That's the point that Jesus made to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. He said, take no thought for your life. What you're going to put on, what you're going to eat. Stop getting so wrapped up on the inside with anxiety and worry about the basic necessities of life. I can hear the disciples saying, yeah, we just left our careers for you, dude. What do you mean take no thought for our life? I had a successful fishing business. And now I'm sleeping on the ground. That rock is my pillow. What do you mean take no thought for my life? And Jesus gave them some reasons as to why they shouldn't worry. And one of his very first reasons was this. Because I'm your heavenly father. He's referred. Jesus refers to God as their heavenly father three times in Matthew chapter 6. Because of who God is, you can trust him. You ever heard of a girl by the name of Jennifer Gates? It's Bill Gates' daughter. You think Jennifer Gates ever worried about what her next meal was going to be? Do you think she even worried about whether or not she was going to get a car when she was 16? No, why? Because her dad was Bill Gates. And she knew it. 
Well, your heavenly dad is God the creator. And you should know it. And you should know that he will exert his power to provide for you and give you what you need, when you need it, and exactly how you need it. So stop worrying. Stop staying up at night, rolling back and forth. Your heavenly father makes Bill Gates look like he's in poverty. Take a chill pill. God's got it. You know what else it tells me? If you can trust him, then you should take everything that is outside of your realm of control and power. You should take it to him in prayer. You should be quicker to pray and I should be quicker to pray. Because of who he is. Everything you can't control, quit trying to control. And give it to the one who's already in control. Who has all power. Don't be tempted to, to, to trust in the delusion of autonomy. I'm just going to get it done myself because that's how I was raised. No. Give it to the one who can really get it done. And you can stay sane at the same time. Learn to pray. Peter says, cast all your care on him because he cares for you. That word cast is amazing. Doesn't mean sprinkle. Doesn't mean toss. It means dump it all on God. I mean, literally. Like a dump truck that backs up and just unloads it. You unload everything at the feet of God. And normally as humans, we feel or we should feel bad for that, doing it to other humans. Because they have limited capacity to hold those burdens. So we feel kind of bad. Sometimes we can take that into our relationship with God. Well, we don't need to feel bad. Why? He's omnipotent. He can handle it. It's like this gigantic landfill waiting for your problems to be dumped. And it never gets too full. And he never gets overwhelmed. So just back up the dump truck of all your cares every day, multiple times a day, every evening in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and just dump them all on God. Why? Because he cares for you. He's in love with you. Just like you are your kids. Just like if your son or daughter came to you and they sincerely said, I'm worrying about this, or I'm struggling with this. If you're a good parent, you wouldn't berate them for that. You wouldn't chide them for that. You wouldn't rebuke them for that. You wouldn't say, quit wasting my time. You would embrace them. You would shepherd them through that scary moment. You would love them. And God does the same for you. Yes, he's all powerful, but he's so all loving at the same time. So cast it all at his feet. Because he wants you to. Then maybe you need to do that tonight. Maybe you need to come forward or maybe you need to pray in your seat. And maybe you just need to say, God, I can't. I can't. I can't carry this anymore. I can't try to solve this problem anymore. I can't try to make myself feel this way anymore. I can't overcome this on my own anymore. I can't do it. I'm trying to forgive and I just can't do it on my own. Trying to love my spouse sacrificially, I just can't do it on my own. I'm trying to overcome this addiction, I just can't do it on my own. Trying to get rid of this bitterness, but I just can't do it on my own. I'm trying to raise kids to love Jesus, but I can't do it on my own. Trying to pay my bills, I just can't do it on my own. Maybe on a midweek service you need to come and say, God, I can't. I can't. And I'm going to stop pretending like I can 
One more time, one more time, even if you did it this morning, one more time, I'm just going to get to the feet of Jesus and I'm going to dump all my cares on him. Because if you're like me, you might have did that this morning, but they all piled up already. Don't go to bed with them tonight. Use this moment of worship to say, here you go, God. Give them to you again. Because with your all power and your, your consistent love in my life, you will deal with this way better than I ever could on my best day. And God's church said, amen. Stand to your feet. Let's come and pray tonight.